Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, uh, glad that you're here. My name is Brennan, I'm teaching pastor here. If you're watching online uh, on the live stream, thanks for watching and or tuning in as well. Those of you in person, glad that you're here. Today we're kicking off a brand new series. If this is your first time, you picked a great day. Uh, we teach in series here, so like, a, you know, focus on the topic for a little length of time. And then when I get sick of talking about it, you get sick of hearing about it, we move on. And uh, today we're starting a new one called Wandering in Darkness. It's a series on suffering. Uh, which I know sounds like, that sounds like a weird one to do during the summer. But then I thought, you know what? It's like 100 degrees out. Like what better time of year than right now to talk about suffering if you're living in the Tri-City? So uh, we're going to be doing that for a little bit. Um, And uh, if you are a part of this or some of this stuff interests you and you want to kind of keep up on the series, but you know, it's summertime, so you're traveling or it's boat races or it's all the things. Uh, there's a website. Uh, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks or the app that you can download and tag along as well. Anything on the screen is going to be on the notes part of that app too. You can uh, follow along in that way. But I'd like to start off by asking uh, a question for you or, or having a little social experiment, fill in the blank on something for uh, for me. Uh, and, and this is true with, you know, I know we're a church. Listen, we try and be a church. People don't typically like church. We get a lot of people who are like, I'm kicking the tires of Christianity. I used to be a Christian. I used to whatever. Uh, we really don't care. It doesn't matter for us. We're just trying to be a community of people, trying to live in the way of Jesus, figure out what that looks like and feels like and means uh, in the Tri-Cities in 2023. Um, so with that, I assume that there's going to be people approaching this from all different kinds of religious spectrums and belief systems and whatever. So even if you are a Christian, do sign up and ad- identify as such. This will be a, you know, a, a fill in the blank thing for you too. But um, I believe in God, or I believe in the whole God thing, if it wasn't for blank, right? And you can fill this in for yourself. You can fill this in for like, you've got a, a friend or a nephew or a child who, who's like not into the whole God thing. And if you were to kind of fill this blank in for them, what would they put in the blank or what would you put in the blank? What, what, what have you put in the blank for a, a long time? And somebody bribed you with lunch, which is the only reason why you're here or watching this online or whatever. Um, what would you put in the blank? And my, my guess is this, that um, one of the easiest ones to put in there uh, and one of the ones that makes the most sense. And even if the wording isn't quite right, if you were to give me a different word, uh, if we talked through it and boiled it down, it would probably come to us at the end in terms of, I believe in the whole God thing if it wasn't for suffering. Suffering in the world, suffering in general, suffering is a theory um, or perhaps my own personal suffering or an inglorious mix of those two things of it being in general theoretical, but also very, very practical and felt in my own life. I believe in God, except like, how can a good God allow suffering in this way? And the, 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 uh, the, po- the question is often posed or the, the problem is often posed in this way. There's like three basic premises. One, we all believe that evil and suffering exists in the world. Like you just have to like, open a news email or go to CNN.com or something to realize uh, that evil and suffering exists in the world. And we try and uh, buffer ourselves from it as much as we can. But every once in a while, we're reminded of it theoretically. And then every once in a while, we're reminded of it personally too. When we experience bouts of pain, uh, of suffering, either random suffering, uh, which sucks too, but or the um, or the 
uh, active um, evil or active insistence upon suffering engaged from one person to us. Somebody else causes us a, a level of suffering. That's, that's as hard to deal with as well. And so number two then, um, this is where we might lose some people and we might gain some people too. There exists a God, an all uh, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, perfectly good God, right? Um, and to, to, you know, omniscient basically means all-knowing, omnipotent means all-powerful. These are fancy terms for uh, all. And then perfectly good, one who is definitely good. So if you, you know, you can believe in one and then to some, you know, we're going to lose some people with question number two, but there are people who believe in one and also believe in two. And then the third one, which is the most crucial uh, one uh, that is really, really hard. There is no morally sufficient reason for an omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly good God to allow suffering in the world. This is what's called formally as the argument from evil for the existence or non-existence primarily uh, of God. Um, if there is a perfectly good God in the world, then, then there should be no evil. There should be no suffering. The fact that there is, and he's either, maybe he's not omniscient. Maybe he doesn't know about evil that's happening in the world, or maybe he's not all powerful. He has no capabilities to overcome it. Or more likely, he's just perfectly not good or that he doesn't exist at all. Some sort of limitations on all, all of those things. Um, it's really hard to get all three of those things in, in a, a deal. So from a philosophical argument, this is the problem of evil or the argument from evil for the existence or non-existence of God. Now, you and I and people a lot smarter than us have come up with frameworks or lenses by which we are able to navigate suffering, both personal and theoretical. Answers that we've kind of heard or, or come up with. Things like he's got his reasons for doing things that we don't understand, right? Or that there's some greater good that must come from this, and this is also the glory of God, uh, or everything happens for a reason, or I don't know. Uh, these are all kind of examples or, or ways that we've kind of made sense of these. The, the formal term for making sense of a system of beliefs to explain the coexistence of all three of these premises is called a theodicy or theodicy. Um, and it basically means it's an explanation of why an omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly good God permits evil. There's no quiz, don't worry. This is just gonna help you out in crossword later on. If there's a clue that has to do with this, the theodicy is, is what it is, that's the answer. But um, in our attempts to make sense of these, we lean towards trying to have black and white answers because we love simplicity in life. We love things that make sense to us. The reason we like our iPhone is not because it has a better camera than a Samsung phone. It just works better than a, than a Samsung phone. You know what I mean? Like we crave that like ease of, ease of use and user interface and just like, so when, when we hear a theodicy or whatever, we, we go, this helps us make sense of life. Um, and yet if you were to like really dive down into it and if you were really to spend some time on it and you talk to people who are, you know, smarter than you and, and do this thing, like you realize it's complicated. And, and if you're going through pain, if you're going through a suffering and you're trying to, and you're a Christian, you're like, I want to hold on to the idea that there is an omnipotent, all powerful, perfectly good God. And yet like this divorce happened or, or this, this thing's happening with my kids or this illness or this chronic thing, this, this pain, this something that's, that I'm struggling with. I'm trying to like navigate how I feel with all of those uh, different types of, uh, of pieces. We would say that, that like when talking about pain and suffering, things are complicated um, because one, we know that not all pain is bad, right? Um, if you go to a, the dentist and, say, and he says to you, I'm gonna have to pull this tooth and you're going, well, that sounds like a lot of pain. I don't feel any pain right now. I came in here just for a cleaning and now you're telling me I'm gonna have to have a tooth pulled and there's gonna be like, I'm gonna have days where I can't go into work and I look like a pirate and all of these, uh, you know, what's going on with, with this? And he's like, well, I'm trying to prevent you from more pain later on, you know, like, but I'm not experiencing any pain, which is another piece of pain. Like we know that 
like a little bit of pain now is better to save us from pain later. Um, we know that sometimes we can be, we can have pain and not realize that we're in pain, that we continually, la- we don't feel like anything's wrong with us, but we lash out and people are like, you're hurting. You're like, I don't feel like I'm hurting. We can feel like we're in pain when we're not really in pain, like a, psych- a somatic thing. Um, we can uh, understand that even talks with people about you know, theories explaining pain and suffering can help on a, can work on a theoretical level, but not work on a personal level. You can attend a service like this and hear me talk about Job or some sort of God making sense of suffering and be like, and walk out and be like, my life still hurts and I'm still in pain. And um, we know that pain can't be, even when we explain pain, it doesn't explain it away. When the doctor says, here's why um, you're hurting. You're like, that sounds good, but like, I didn't come here for an explanation of why I'm hurting. <laughs> I came here to not hurt. So what are we doing about that, right? Um, to explain pain, like I said, is not to explain it away. And so um, sometimes the idea of, you know, we go to a church and we hope for a theodicy or something to kind of explain this away isn't quite, uh, I don't want to say worth our time, but it's just an un- unrealized expectation for us. And so my hope for the next couple of weeks is we, di- is we dive in and discuss the complexity that surrounds pain and suffering and God's role in, in his goodness and his perfectly good goodness and his omnipotence and his omniscience and all of that um, with this uh, how we, how we hold these two things in tension uh, is to posit some more of a defense of how this could be possible. The difference between a theodicy and a defense is the theodicy says, here's why it makes sense. Here's the truth about God and here's why suffering is good. A defense is simply, here's a possibility on how it could make sense. And from a legal terms, uh, a defense lawyer always just tells a story that creates a sense of doubt um, that hopefully becomes more than just probable doubt uh, for why his uh, his, his person that he's defending is in, innocent or could possibly be innocent. So for the course of the next couple weeks, I want to provide a defense for you. I want to look at the narrative stories of some people who have experienced personal suffering in scripture. I want to look at their personal stories because it doesn't really qualify. There's not a lot in here about like step one uh, for overcoming pain and suffering is this. Step two is this. Step three is this. The better piece that we get are pictures of people and stories of people who have experienced this. And then we get to identify our presence in the story and how we feel and how they kind of, whether or not they were real characters or not, as we're going to talk about today, we're going to spend some time looking at the epic of Job, as I kind of uh, prefer to call it, where I think this was a story that was created by a people who were trying to make sense of suffering in the world and a God who allows all these things to happen. This was their... This is their narrative or their epic, their, their, their odyssey, their Iliad, their something for this sort of piece in this. Um, <clears throat> and before we go into this in, in a deeper fashion and be like specifically focusing on Job, I do want to mention um, pain and suffering point us towards something that's incongruous with our life. It's something that we don't want. It's a uh, pathway towards something that's uh, that, that, that is, is dark and something we want to avoid. And so then the question becomes, what is it that we, we most want to avoid? Or uh, a better way of saying it, perhaps, what is our worst case scenario? What is, according to scripture uh, in life, what is the worst case scenario for, for humans? Um, is it death? Um, is it, um, uh, as kind of Christian tradition would have it, not just this life of death, but some sort of permanent death or, or death beyond this or hell or, um, you know, what, what, is, what is the worst case scenario that we could get into? 
And if you've been a part of Eastlake for any length of time, you know I don't probably speak of, and we've never done a series on hell, and I don't really talk about it a lot, and mostly because I think that there's uh, a lot of things that have been attached to the perception of it that just don't really match up what we see in, in experience and history. And perhaps uh, one of the best ways of looking at it, in my opinion, is kind of C.S. Lewis's take on hell being a state of a state of someone's personhood where there's a uh, that it's it's willed loneliness is a term that I want to use for this this series that. The worst possible scenario for us as human beings is to find ourselves in a state of perpetual willed loneliness, both in this life and whatever it is in the life to come, where we say, I don't need anybody or anything. I can do it my own way. I want to uh, distance myself from anyone and anything. And I think the story of God over and over in Scripture is him showing up in a loving way towards his creation and them choosing to stiff arm him and walk in the opposite direction. So if there's ever a distance that is seen between God and somebody, it's because this somebody has moved away. And that thing would translate over for you too, that God has never pushed you away, moved you away in spite of anything that you've ever done. He doesn't love you any more, any less than he could based on your activity or whatever. He loves you in uh, insatiably and, and desperately and wants and is in a, 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 uh, an epic uh, universe long, or that's not the right word, a, a, time, a time frame since the beginning of time trying to reintegrate his creation back into this and allowing them the freedom to kind of choose their own way and to move away from him. And so he says, if you've ever found yourself distanced from me, it's not because I've moved away from you, but because you've moved away from me. In this willed loneliness, I don't need that. I can go and do my own thing. We see it. I mean, some of the most, like the saddest stories of people that we know, and you've seen family members, neighbors, people who go through life and they just, they, they just kind of push everyone else away. Or if you have a kid, an adult child, you want this relationship with them. You love them. They're your kid, but they keep choosing choosing to stiff arm you, choosing to walk away. And you can't, you don't want to force them into it. And legally, like you get to a spot where you can't. And so it's just like constantly, and it hurts so bad and so badly, you want to kind of reintegrate them into this system of love, this community of love. And there's just this willed loneliness that goes away. Lewis would say uh, in The Problem of Pain, his treatise on dealing with pain, one of his first books that he wrote from a theology book standpoint, uh, that the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And then he, he writes another one about the, the, called The Great Divorce. It's like this story that has this imagery of a bus that goes and visits hell from heaven. And in, in the story, the characters are, are slowly distancing themselves away, setting up shops further and further away from the community and away from each other. And his conclusion, or one of the conclusions that he comes to in this, is that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And so, to me, the worst case scenario we could find ourselves in is a life consumed with ourself, willed loneliness from our fellow man, 
from our family, from people who love us, and ultimately with the Heavenly Father who loves us, being like, I'm good. I don't need you, and I don't need you. That is worst case scenario. That is what pain and suffering can drive us towards if we're not careful, which is why we need to have a better framework with which to understand pain and suffering in the world, which is why I wanna talk about it for a few weeks. So we're gonna talk about Job, we're gonna talk about Samson, we're gonna talk about Abraham, we're gonna talk about Mary of Bethany over the next couple of weeks. And at the very end, we're gonna kind of synthesize this whole thing and hopefully have a better understanding. Something in your toolkit to deal with pain and suffering should you uh, go through something like that. So today, start with the epic uh, of Job because no real theological uh, discussion would be complete without talking about the epic of Job. There's basically, if you've never read the book or come across that or whatever, three, or it's been a while perhaps since you've done it. It's a, it's a book in the Old Testament. It's in the poetry section of it, uh, right around that Psalms, Proverbs kind of area. It's got beautiful poetry. In fact, uh, I recently read through a uh, Robert Alter's kind of commentary on the Old Testament where he mentions that the poetry of Job is perhaps the richest uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew writings of the Old Testament. Like, it's just beautiful. Like, whoever, whoever did it was a talented uh, artist, a talented writer. And you've read talented writers before. You've read somebody who wrote uh, you know, a review on, on Oppenheimer or Barbie, and then another person wrote it as well. And you're like, that's a, good, that's a good take on it. This is just somebody who went to the movie and got paid to produce something. You know what I mean? Like, there's a difference you can tell just in reading it. And uh, the same way could be said for, for Job's writing. It's just like, the, the, it was, it's masterful in its presentation uh, for this sort of thing. So basically three big blocks uh, of Job. Uh, in the very beginning, you've got the framing story, which is, um, you know, it's the presentation of the characters and the protagonist and the antagonist in the story. Um, it's uh, like once upon a time, there's a king and a queen and a princess and they live in the castle, right? That's a framing story. You know a little bit about where you're at. With this one, uh, it's Satan shows up in this, uh, in Next, uh, next time we talk about this, I'll go into a little bit more of the framing story because I think that there's a really huge thing to kind of unpack in there. But um, the, the, the framing sets the stage. Uh, Satan approaches God and says, um, you know, God says, where, where are you coming from? I've been roaming the earth. I'm like, I'm, I'm unsettled. I'm like, I'm not finding a spot. Um, and this whole thing's a joke, right? And, and God says, uh, uh, have you considered Job? Have you seen my servant Job? He's like, perfect. And Job presents this thing. He's only, he only likes you because you do good things for him. He challenges the transactional approach of God. Um, and it's, it's a, this is a relevant thing for us too. As long as your life is going well, you're, like you're good with God, things aren't going well, then all of a sudden I'm angry with God. I mean, it's natural to be angry at something, but he's going, this is how these... And, and Satan's cynical in all this. This is how all of your relationships work. In everything, when things are going good in people's life, they like you. And when it's not going good, they don't like you and they blame you. And God says, I don't think that that's true. And uh, Satan says, let me give you a chance to prove it. Let me do some things to Job and see if it works out that way. So it's like this weird cosmic game that you're like, why would they play games with suffering of some independent third party? We'll get there. We'll talk about that. I think there's a reason for it. But uh, God says, fine, let's, 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 uh, let's roll the dice. Let's do this thing. I'll withhold, I'll withdraw my hand of protection over Job. Do with him what you must, but you cannot hurt uh, Job himself. And so the very first story is um, Job loses everything uh, in two different waves. In the first wave, this, uh, th- 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 his pain is external. Um, all of his stuff is gone in a day. It says like natural disasters come up and kill his flocks and uh, take out his homes and um, ruin his, his fields. 
And then barbarians from the east come in and invade and kill his sons and his daughters. And some of them are killed in natural disasters themselves. But everything that he loves in life is gone. And it feels like in an instant, in the story, in the epic itself, it's like that day these things happen, which is like this external sort of pain. And, and perhaps, you know, that would describe a pain that you have. I mean, you, you're going through acute pain right now, and it seems to be a little bit external. It has nothing to do with you physically. If somebody goes, how are you doing? You're like, I'm good, but I'm hurting because these things are happening around me. The problem with external pain is it can cause you to like really lack trust for how things are supposed to operate or trust in the way things that were done before. Like you, you get hurt and you go, I need to kind of take note of that and not allow that to happen again. Um, you go through a divorce and you think, okay, I learned from that. I'm not going to take that into this marriage. I'm physically, I'm fine, but like I just have a problem trusting people now or, or whatever. Or, um, you know, it's, it's all, it's not to say that it's not internalized. Some of that is, but um, if you've ever um, been stolen from, if somebody's ever broken into your home, you know the feeling of the violation that comes with that. Like, you've, like it's external, but it's still painful, not just because I lost my Xbox, but because now I'm having a tough time like feeling safe in a place that I'm supposed to feel safe, you know? So that's part of it, but that's an external thing. Then uh, Job survives this. He speaks only good. He does, he's, his prayer at the end of chapter one is God does as he sees it, uh, whatever comes, comes, and, and I just kind of lean with it. So then Satan reapproaches God and says, I mean, yeah, so he survived the first one, but honestly, it was all external pain. If you caused him internal pain, if you did something to him, if you caused him physically, if you internalized this pain and internalized this, this suffering, he would be so fast to reject you. He would be so fast to turn his back on you. So God says, all right, let's play round two. Let's go through this. And again, don't judge God for this. We'll get to there as to why he's doing this. But everything physical, but his very life, the rules and the parameters that God gives uh, Satan in this scenario or in this story, this fable, is you can do anything to him uh, but take his own life. And so they inflict these boils on his skin and uh, they, make, they make him have uh, nightmares. He, in, 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 in the anguish that he's going through, it's like he, he says in one of his prayers, when it's daytime, I beg for night. And, but yet when I'm at night, I can't wait for the day. I'm like never settled in either spot. Like I'm always one, like safety or uh, relief from the pain is always somewhere else. And then when I get there, I realize I'm not, there's no relief here. It must be over there. And I've like done this enough to know there's no relief to be found anywhere. And he begins to talk about these boils of skin. Not only do they cause me physical pain, but I recognize I'm repulsive to look at. I'm, I'm hideous to be around. I, I, it's become a, a, a scorn of shame. Not only do people, when they see me, when they, when they saw me when I lost everything that I owned and I lost my kids, they had, uh, they had grief for me. They had sadness. They, they, they processed through this. I'm so sorry this happened to you. And now they see me and they don't even wanna be around me. There's something repulsive about me. There's something about me that they go, what have you done? I mean, these are the dialogues that he has with his friends. They're saying, like, what have you done to deserve all of this? Like, there's these, this type of a thing doesn't happen to someone who's good. This is reserved to somebody who's done dark evil that nobody else knows about. So what are you doing when nobody's looking that has caused you all of these types of pains? And Job is once, constantly going, I did nothing. I'm innocent of all of this. 
I'm innocent of all of this. Like, I don't understand either. Beginning to question God, why, why are you allowing these things to happen? Why have you put this plague on me as a person and surrounding me with people who in my time of greatest need are not supporting me, but are condemning me and are saying hurtful things to me and not guiding me towards restitution, not pushing me towards love, but challenging my very belief systems, kicking me while I'm down. He says, my own wife looked at me and said, just curse God and die already. He's like, have you ever been like, he's, he's going, how could you put these people into my life? And, and he's in this desperate state of, of demanding from God answers. The one thing Job wants, as he says over and over and over again, because really the framing is chapters one and two. And then you've got like 36 chapters of dialogue between him and his friends, back and, talking back and forth, philosophical arguments. It's, it's poetry and it's great and all that kind of good stuff. And he keeps, they keep going, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And he's working this out. And every time he gets back to, I just want answers for this. Where's God in all of this? What's his plan? Like, I know that he's good. Uh, this isn't matching up. This doesn't feel good. What's his deal? I'm demanding that you're good. And not only that, he will say over and over again, you are good. You will be good. I know that you are. I demand your goodness. I know that you're good. I will not, and he tells his friends this, I will not serve a God who is not good, which can feel a little bit, oh, careful there. You know what I mean? But that's what he says. I know that God is good. I refuse a God who's not good. And his friends are like, how dare you? And then, then what happens? In, in chapter 38, the whole thing switches. We go to the third block of the frame. In the third block of the frame, God has a one-on-one face-to-face encounter with Job. It says he shows up in a whirlwind. And he, he finally gets his payday. He finally gets his answers. And God speaks to him in a voice as coming out of like this whirlwind sort of, you know, again, an epic, it's an imagery, it's a story, it's an analogy of these things. But then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said this, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Or the translation that I grew up listening to that maybe, uh, that maybe you heard, which is like, I think just even poetically even better. Who, uh, who obscures, who, who, who approaches me or who, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the uh, crap. Dang it. I didn't even write it down because I'm like, I'll memorize that. I've got that remember. I don't know. It's good. Who, <laughs> who, what is it? Google it. No, I'm not going to Google it right now. Sorry, I'm not going to do that. But uh, who approaches me with words without knowledge? Who, 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 who darkens my counsel? There it is. Who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? See, we can wrap up in prayer. Now we're done. We're good. Who darkens my, who dares darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? That's beautiful. I mean, that's like, oh man, right? Who are you to do this? Like who, who is here that has, has been questioning my integrity? saying, you're not who you said you are. You said you were always good. How can I trust you? Now I, now I distrust everything about you. And there, it seems to be, and it seems to assume, or a way to read this, is that my power is better or bigger than my goodness. I may be good, but I am definitely powerful. And that that's, it seems to be the approach of the friends. When, when Job says, I will not serve him if he's not good, like that's not a God, that's not a God for me. And they go, well, he's powerful. He gets to do what he wants. And if you've ever, listen, if you have ever um, been taught by somebody in a position like mine that God's power is greater than his goodness, he's God, he gets to do whatever he wants. 
You, if, if he destines some to be sent to hell and that's, that's, it's his prerogative. Let me just tell you, I think that's wrong. I don't think that's right. I think that God's goodness is wrapped, is his great, that is his thing. And I think we're gonna see some vindication about this. But the, the perception in this point and the, a way to read this, I get it, is God speaking out of the world and going, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Do you know who it is that you're talking to? Were you there when the creation of the world took place? Were you there when I marked the boundaries of all of these different types of things? Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? And, he, and he's going to go through um, basically two, what they are called divine speeches. God speaks these long soliloquies about um, kind, of, kind of, were you there? Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? And then Job is going to respond, and then he's going to go back into it again. And he's going to kind of dive, in, dive even further into this. And that the responses of Job's uh, the response of Job to, to God saying, were you there when I did this is interesting because he says in the first one uh, in uh, chapter 40, verse four, behold, I am vile. And in the second one, just a couple of chapters later, he's gonna say, I recant and repent in dust and ashes. Which, you know, in, in one glance, if you're going, he's so blown away by the power of God that he understands that he goes, I'm, I'm nothing. Or it's kind of like the person who talks real big smack about the boss at work and then the boss shows up, right? And the, I heard you've been saying some things about me. Well, you know, I was just kind of complaining because of work conditions and, you know, you're asking me to work Saturdays or whatever. And you're like, I just kind of melt a little bit. That, that is one way to read it. But there is something about Job's humility in this and his honesty in this that we've had 30 or so chapters of hearing him stand firm in his belief. We've had 30 chapters or so affirming his goodness and his right upstandingness and his demands that God is good and his conviction about it. To then kind of slink away feels a little bit like, I don't know that that character would operate in that way. If you've ever read a book in the very last chapter of the book, the character does something that's out of character for the whole rest of the other 400 pages of the book. And you're like, that feels like that author kind of took like a lazy shortcut. Like they had to, they had to write something in to kind of end the story because they had to be done with it. But that's not how that character would actually do things. And that can either be the laziness of the author or if the author's really good, there's probably something there that I'm missing. And if we know that the author of Job was a literary artist and there's mastery over this poetry and there's a deep connection with this, that there's probably something more here than simply I took a big stand and then all of a sudden a big storm things and I kind of slink away from this. I think there's something different here. And I think there's a different way to read it. So I'm, I'm gonna posit a defense for you. Not that I'm sure that this is exactly how this works, but this is an open possibility of how to read some of the words that God says in this wind to Job. You can then decide for yourself whether this makes a more educated or, or thoughtful expression to what happens here and why Job is engaged in the story. Chapter 38, verse four, this is right after the whirlwind. Who, who dares darken my counsel with words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? And then listen to this, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. No doubt he's going into this saying, like, I don't want to downplay my involvement in creation. Like, I 
he's, he's saying like, were you there when I did all of these things? From the very beginning, this has been this massive giant project. And look who's involved in this. The morning stars sing together. The angels shout for joy. There's a communal sharing of joy and song that surrounded my creation of the world that I didn't create this out of anger, out of frustration, out of I needed people to worship me. He's like, I did this creation thing out of a joy, out of relationship with people, out of a sense of, as we get from the Christian doctrine of creation, he did this out of love. That that's what kind of set apart um, Judaism and, and um, uh, Israel and, and eventually Christianity away from other pagan religions where pagan religions, they had all kinds of reasons for why the gods created the world. Mostly it was to serve the gods and or to fight amongst themselves that their God created these people and their God created these people and whoever's God was the best wins. And it was created out of conflict. It was created out of war. It was created out of necessity. And all of a sudden the, the God of, of, of uh, Judaism, the God of the eventually become Christianity says, no, no, I didn't create the world out of war or conflict. I created out of love that I would start creation and then I would invite my creation to create with me. Go in, propagate this world, have dominion on it, fill it and subdue it, have dominion over this world. That creation from the beginning has been this communal process. It's been a joyful process the entire time. And then he goes on, verse eight, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here's where your proud waves halt. We could read through this and kind of work through this fast and, and not recognize some of the imagery behind this. Look at this. Who, who gives, who shut up the seas behind the doors when it bursts forth from the womb? Who, what kind of a person has things birth forth from the womb? Who wraps them in garments? Who gives them rules and boundaries, sets them in place and provides a sense of order in their life? This is maternal language here. He's, when he's talking about his creation, he's saying, I gave birth to this creation. I swaddled it in clothes. I gave it rules and boundaries. Here's where you can go and no further. And I didn't do it out of hatred, like, you know, you shall not pass sort of Gandalfian stuff. But in the same way that you've loved your kids and be like, here's where you can go. You can't go into the street. You can play in this yard. You can't touch that outlet, but you can touch all of these toys. I did it. You do that out of love, not out of like, I don't want you to have fun by playing in the street. You know that that's not safe. So he's going into this creation piece going, in my creation piece, I did this out of partnership. I did it out of love. Everything I've ever done has been out of love. And then, and then after his first speech, so then, so then uh, after the first speech, Job hears this story. Here's God saying, everything I've ever done has been out of love. Job says, behold, I'm, I'm vile. Like I'm realizing I, I, I've had so many questions and I've had so many doubts about your goodness, but you've been operating in goodness the entire time. Like everything you've ever done is about goodness. Behold, I was completely in the wrong. Then he goes on in the divine speech number two, and he begins to talk about this uh, the behemoth and Leviathan, these, these mythical imagery of these beasts, one of them uh, being like this massive land animal, one of them being like a sea monster sort of thing. They come from like these, all these pagan rituals and, and, and religions that they would have. They didn't, the, the sea was a big unknown to them. And so if you went off, you met the sea monster, that kind of thing. And he's like, I, I, I have had ownership and relationship with them. I, I have relationship with animals you would never have relationship with. My creation, you don't know them. You've never seen them. 
They wouldn't like you if you liked them. You have a dog as a pet, but you've never had a buffalo. I'm in relationship with all of them. Who is it? Who, who loves his creation more than me? You're right to appeal to my goodness. I've operated in goodness this entire time. I mean, this is the language. This is the parental imagery, this relationship with creation, sharing what he has created with them, making them glad by doing so. Even if, a God, even, uh, if God deals as a good parent, even with the intimate or inanimate parts of his creation, if he seeks to produce good even for infant ravens, how much more so will he do with the human person? If I've done this for my creation since the beginning of time, how much more for you? Jesus would say it in this way later on, teaching with his disciples, consider the ravens. Consider the sparrow. If he falls to the ground, does not God see him and care for him? How much more so does God create for you? This is the original version of that. I've been doing this the entire time. So at one point then, Job sees this and he hears this. And he, his response at first is like this depredation of self. Like, I just, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I got caught up in the emotion of it. I had so many questions. I kept appealing to your goodness and I could not make sense and I could not navigate and make, make it all work for me. But I do now know you've always been good. You work in goodness, even when I don't understand goodness. And in chapter 42 or 40, yeah, 42 verse five. Job says this, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. What changes for Job? It's not theoretical anymore. He got to experience a firsthand encounter with a God who looked him in the eyes or was there in the presence, or I don't wanna be like God had eyes and he looked right in his eyes and it was deep in his eyes. But like, if you've ever experienced betrayal from somebody and you've, you've been like, and, and you've heard rumors and rumors swirling. He said, she said this and that, whatever the other thing. Sometimes you know that the only way to get at the root of it is to get on a plane or get in a car and go sit down with that person, look him in the eyes and say, it's me, it's me. Do you not trust me? You know me. And in that moment you go, you're right. Like I, I just got caught up in other things. I don't, it was you. It's like this first person encounter there, there where no amount of words in an email, no amount of text messages, no amount of phone calls, no amount of FaceTimes could really fix it. But when we sat in a room together and we looked across from each other, I knew I could trust you. I knew I could trust you. And for Job, that's how it worked. I know that might not be enough for you. I know like, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, if, if somebody's there going, well, God's got to prove his goodness to me or, or whatever. I know, but you know people though too that have, been, have gotten dealt a really crappy hand of cards in life. And yet they choose to maintain God's goodness in all of this. And they go, it was an encounter. It was a moment. I just, I was going through this and I had every right to kind of give up on God and give up on this and, and whatever. And yet I read something, I listened to something. I was writing in my journal, in my prayer time, in my something. I went to church I, in, in, during a worship song. I just felt comforted. I just felt like there was, a, there was a moment between me and God and I knew everything was gonna be okay. Even if it wasn't gonna be okay, somehow it would be okay. And I know that that's not enough for everybody, but it was enough for Job and it has been enough for some people. Let's just create that space of it being enough for some people. And here's what I wanna close with. I think this is the best part of this story. Job was not criticized for clinging to God's goodness. When Job says, I'll only worship a God who is good, God doesn't show up in power and say, I could be whatever it is that I wanna be. God shows up and says, he doesn't criticize Job for thinking like that. He says, I would think the same thing if I was you, but I'm pr I wanna show you I've been good this entire time. I've never not operated out of goodness. And he saves his harshest comments, not for Job, but for his friends who have said to them, 
Don't appeal to God's goodness. His power should be enough for you. He looks at his friends in verse seven of chapter 42 and says, my anger is hot against you because you've not said of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. He's looking at Job going, I get it. I know why you've thought those things. I know why you've cried out. And I'm, I'm so sorry that you can't fully understand it. But I just wanna look you in the eye and let you know that I'm good, that you're right to appeal to my goodness. And that you, whatever it is that you're going through, are right to appeal to God's goodness. And yet you might not get those answers in the same way that Job didn't get his full answers. In fact, even at the end of the story, it kind of leaves it open-ended. I think intentionally, I think the author's trying to say, sometimes that resolution never comes and you never get to see the goodness of the side of things. But you have to, you trust, we trust that God is good in this. And I know that that's not good enough for some people. We'll get a little bit more, I think, in a couple of weeks when we go back and look at the framing story of this as to why this is the case. But I mean, imagine a local political science teacher, professor, having complaints about a U.S. president's policies and getting an actual audience with the president. Imagine having somebody in a classroom, you know, firing off, oh, the president sucks, the decision, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, the knock on the door, the president walks in, I heard you had something to say, you're discriminating. I mean, imagine the people going, it was just like a little opinion. I just think, you know, you know, and then the president hears them and doesn't say, you're right, I'm gonna go change my policies, but sometimes just hearing that person out validates that person. Listen, there are gonna be some reports and access to information that I have that you don't. And you just need to know that that's the case. And I have my ways of doing the things that I need to do. And you might not understand it. But in some point, at some point, even just the presence and the conversation is validation enough. Do you know who had the longest face-to-face -face conversation in all of biblical literature with God himself? Job. Not Abraham, not Moses. God speaks the most as recorded as we have or presented in this way in, from a person in a person-to-person -person relationship with God. God speaks the most with Job, almost validating his, I know why you're feeling this way. I know why you would think this. I want you to know I see you, I hear you, I get it. You are right to appeal to my goodness. The story's not gonna end with the resolution that you want because there's gonna be mystery because you don't always know the right answers, but you are right to appeal to my goodness. And I will criticize those who speak, oh, no, his power, you should be like, whatever. He's like, I've got my harshest words for some of them, which I think, I think if that was the case, then Job's response of, behold, I am vile. Man, I'm, I'm I, that makes so much more sense. It makes sense for him to be like, I was wrong. Like, I get it. I'm sorry, I was just hurting. That's why I said those things. But I realize now you are who you are. You are, you have it all under control anyways. Your thoughts are bigger than, than my thoughts. And, and somehow, somehow your goodness is still intact in spite of all of this. Guys, that's a way to read his response. I think it's probably a better way to read his response than God getting all huffy puffy saying, who are you to darken counsel with words without knowledge? I think that some of that piece is in there of, of God going, hey, come on, let's set the parameters correct. But just so you know, I've dealt in goodness my entire existence, your entire existence. I am good. I am the epitome of good. I define love. What I say is love is love. I, I, I've always been good. 
If it's not good, it's not, it's not done. It's not over with. It's not there yet. And I know the question then becomes, yeah, but why would God play this game with it? What are the right answers? How this works? I, I get that we don't, we're not sealing up this story in, in its fullness, which is why we're going to come back to this story and we're going to teach this in the same way. If you ever remember like Christopher Nolan, his first movie, not the Oppenheimer one, the one he did made first was a memento. He told the story backwards. We're telling the story backwards. I told you the story of Job at the end. Next time we talk, we're going to do part one or part two, which is going to be the opening scene, the opening credits, the story of, of God and Satan having a conversation together and what that's all about. And I know this feels like, oh man, there's a part two to this. Well, you went to Mission Impossible recently and didn't realize until you were in the movie that there's a part one and a part two, huh? Part two is coming up. So hopefully to have you back, we'd love to have you back with that. More on the framing story next time. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.